Hi, this is Carol, and you're listening to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Today, we have invited a longtime friend of the show, Matthew Brennan, to come on and talk about his new book titled Attention Factory, The Story of TikTok and China's Vitans. First of all, congratulations on your new book, Matthew, and thank you for coming on to the show. Now, as some of you know, Matthew is a speaker and a writer focused on tech innovations and the Chinese internet space. In particular, he is very well known for his analysis on Tencent, China's tech giant, and of course on WeChat. But with this book, Matthew, you're definitely also adding ByteDance and TikTok into your areas of expertise. Um, but before we get into the book, let's catch up a little bit. Now, some of our loyal listeners might know that you are the, if uh, one of the, if not the most frequently appearing guest of the show. But the last time you came on was actually more than a year ago, around June 2019, and uh, we were talking about Tencent's Q1 earnings. So what have you been up to uh, working on the book, I assume? Did you start uh, researching into it already then? Thank you, Carol. Yeah, it's a pleasure as always to be on the show. Sure. Yeah. So obviously that was pre-COVID. So yeah, since COVID broke out was when we really started getting into writing this book. You know, ByteDance is a competitor with Tencent. So that's where it sort of came from. Whereas I was using ByteDance products a lot and understanding them as a competitor to Tencent. So that's where I really got into it deeply. I think that the Douyin products and TikTok is a really compelling user experience and represents a sort of new wave of uh, internet usage habits that I think we're seeing globally now as TikTok has taken the world by storm. But that story happened two years earlier in China, right, around 2018. Uh, so what we're seeing now this year globally is sort of an echo of, of what happened to some degree in the China market previously. I've been focusing on mostly, this book has been the the biggest projects that I've been working on over the last nine months and has taken up a large chunk of my time with the research and speaking to people at ByteDance and collecting my thoughts <laughs> and analysis around, you know, what, what makes this compelling and, and why is this company growing so fast? Because really, it's been quite an amazing journey for them. And, and so they really have sort of entered the big league now. So they are worthy of analysis. And I think uh, everyone's kind of aware of that now. Definitely. Wow. Nine months. This, so this is like, really your baby. <laughs> and so why don't we, you know, start diving into the book? First of all, you already touched a little bit on it. What really inspired you or made you want to write this book? I was doing a little bit of research on Amazon. And I think this is the first English language book on both ByteDance and TikTok, right? To my knowledge, it is. Even in Chinese, I could find one book in Chinese that actually covers ByteDance. We bought a copy of that. You know, it, it didn't do particularly well either. It was, it was written uh, a few years ago. Yeah, this is probably the first book that in, in Chinese or English that, that covers this material in one place. Yeah, a lot of it's original stuff based on research. I basically read everything in Chinese and everything in English that is out there on public and spoke to a lot of sources at the company. Fortunately, I've been, you know, because ByteDance has, I've kind of seen it grown up being involved in, in the uh, China tech scene for, for many years now that I know people working there. And, and before I even had the idea of writing this book, I was already talking to them about you know, what troubles and difficulties they were coming over. And I sort of got a, a clearer picture of like 
what really happened and, and the growth stages there. So that really, that was great. That really, really helped. But, you know, at the end of the day, what's inspired me to write is just um, how obviously compelling Douyin and TikTok are. And to be honest, there's a, a little thing um, that most people don't know is that back in 2018, you know, we actually sat down and wrote a business plan of how to leverage this with a, with a friend of mine because we were two entrepreneurs in China and uh, we could see that this thing was really going to... We believed in the product back then. We believed that like TikTok would eventually become very successful around the world. We didn't do it in the end because we, we realized that the model around TikTok, when we spoke to the product team, they couldn't guarantee that we were going to do e-commerce. So that was, the, that was the deal breaker for us. We wanted to do e-commerce. I thought you wanted to be a TikTok, you know, celebrity. <laughs> That's too bad. Well, right? There's a lot of uh, new celebrities being formed on TikTok for sure and, and Douyin. But we wanted to do e-commerce and, and the TikTok team back then couldn't guarantee that they were actually going to do that. So we, we decided not to go with it based on that. But yeah, I mean, it just speaks to uh, the fact that, you know, we saw this coming, I think. And it was, uh, if you use the product yourself, you know why it's... Uh, why everyone's talking about it. That's right. I became very addicted to Douyin during quarantine because there really wasn't much to do. And uh, once you download the app and you just get hooked immediately, you know, and I actually even made a few videos and uploaded onto TikTok. That was very difficult to use TikTok while in China. And I believe that account accumulated over like a thousand fans or something, which isn't a lot, but it was an interesting experience. So what are some of the key themes and topics that you cover in this book? Yeah, so the book, I think, is uh, an exploration of you know, why ByteDance, why TikTok, why, why Douyin, uh, and why short video. These are the kind of questions that we're asking. We're looking at the zero to one here. We're not looking at things such as, you know, Donald Trump and bans in India and political issues like that. That's not, If you're coming for this book looking for stuff around that, you're going to be disappointed. This is a breakdown of how this company got into this position in the first place. And why wasn't it Tencent doing this? Why is Facebook not being able to counter the rise of TikTok? You know, why were they blindsided by it? I think these uh, questions are fascinating. So it's, uh, it's an exploration of competitive dynamics between large internet companies. And it's also exploration of you know, what I believe is a new wave of the mobile internet, which in one of the biggest trends in the past three years, which has been short video, and also the rise of recommendation, you know, recommendation engines. We go into that quite deeply. Right. So you focus on more of this, you know, timeless, timeless knowledge versus just commenting on uh, recent news kind of thing. I understand. We know that a lot of obviously different people are interested in the topic of TikTok and ByteDance for a myriad of reasons, um, some of which you've just mentioned. So um, can you, you know, talk a little bit more about who the intended audience uh, of this book um, are? Well, you know, it's like any project, a certain part of it's just writing for yourself, I guess. But you're sort of led by your what you feel is, is interesting. I did, you know, Rita Liao from TechCrunch was, was uh, guided me through the process as an editor, which was really, really useful to work with her. She's written about ByteDance extensively herself. So it was great to have a sounding board, someone who I really respect and was uh, it was amazing to work with her. But at, at the end of the day, you know, this book is very much a business focused book, I feel it. It's going to be something that internet industry people want to read. It's going to be something that investors want to read. And it's going to be something that if people are really just deeply interested into understanding why short video is so compelling and the trends that are guiding are forming our habits around internet 
usage, then this is really going to be a book for you. So that would include academics as well, I guess. Do you also address some of the potential misconceptions about ByteDance and TikTok in the book? Because we know that, uh, you know, TikTok and ByteDance are often characterized by English language media and commentators as a threat to Facebook, a threat to Twitter, and even a threat to the US government itself. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we humanize the company. For sure. We talk a lot about the people behind it, the founder, the key executives, etc. For sure, we do dispel plenty of myths in the book. And we've got definitely some exclusives in there as well of things that have surprised people. I think so far, some of the best feedback I've got is actually from ByteDance staff themselves who've said like, oh, you know, I was pretty surprised <laughs> that you know, you could find that out about the company and also that it's pretty accurate. So for me, I don't think that's the feedback that I'm, I'm probably most proud of so far. Dispelling myths, I think within, there are some myths around Chinese technology and some misconceptions in general, not just ByteDance, uh, that we dive into and sort of break down why, what were the real drivers of success for ByteDance. Yeah, those are some definitely some really good feedback. Um, I personally haven't finished the entire book yet, but there were already things that I um, were really surprised to find out. For example, dive deep into the background of Zhang Yiming, who is the founder of ByteDance. And I knew that he worked briefly at Microsoft in China before, but I was surprised to read in the book that he also worked for um, Fanfo, which is China's Twitter clone started by Wang Xing, you know, who is the uh, founder and CEO of Meituan Dianping. Can you elaborate a little bit more on his background and also on his stint as a, as a CEO of another startup um, called 99Feng before starting ByteDance? What do you think some of the lessons that he learned there were? Yeah. Yeah, Zhang Yimin's not very high profile outside China, right? So people, he's a bit of a mystery to, to people. But he's definitely, when you look at the numbers and you look at the success that he's had, he's, he's clearly one of the most successful and capable entrepreneurs in the world. That's no coincidence because he's actually been through several startups. ByteDance is not his first. And as you've just said, the Twitter clone Fanfo was one of the companies he's involved in, which was Wan Sing's early company, who now the, the CEO of Meituan. Uh, and so it's quite a coincidence that you know, those two uh, characters are now who were you know, working together, hustling their way through the sort of uh, topsy-turvy world of the Beijing startup scene. Uh, at the beginning of this decade, of the, of the last decade, you know, 10 years later, they are two of the most respected CEOs in China, perhaps the world. So that's quite, that's quite a story that, you know, they're, they're friends still and uh, they obviously come from the same uh, part of China, this Longyan in, in Fujian province, which is well documented. But I think the Yiming's profile now is, is, is superseded even Wang Xing's and, and there is a, obviously global interest around TikTok that will raise him up. But he's no, he's no Jack Ma, right? So <laughs> Yiming is not... Uh, He's not outspoken. He's not brash. Uh, he doesn't. He's not a. He's not a great public speaker, to be honest. Uh, he's he's improved a lot, but he's not going to be rousing the troops and making controversial statements. In fact, quite the opposite, right? He's well known for being very cerebral, rather. Uh, he's a voracious reader, and he is also very mild mannered. And very very few people have seen him angry. <laughs> In fact, he's not hot tempered at all. Uh, very logical, but at the same time, very bold and ambitious. You know, it's undeniable that the bets he's placed have been extremely bold, extremely ambitious. So it's it's kind of a this sort of juxtaposition here between like his calm exterior 
and uh, some, this you know entrepreneur who is clearly taking big risks and being ambitious as anyone, as ambitious as Jack Ma, right? Yeah, it's, it's he's an interesting character once you dive in beyond the surface. Yeah, definitely. You also um, wrote about his childhood, uh, about how he uh, read a lot extensively, even as a child, and uh, read a lot of newspapers as well. And I think that's interesting because um, the first app that uh, he 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 worked on um, after starting ByteDance was Toutiao, right? The, the news app. Um, can you talk a little bit about Toutiao, its design concepts, and uh, what has Toutiao taught the ByteDance team? Toutiao. It's a household name in China, but it's almost unknown outside China. We're in a situation of uh, it's, it's such a everyone knows exactly what Totiao is and has used it perhaps, and there's, there's so much written about it, but yet there's almost zero knowledge outside China. So it needs a lot of explanation for an international audience. And also, one of the interesting things actually is there's no direct equivalent of Totiao in Silicon Valley. I think the the closest equivalent would be the Facebook newsfeed, which is is obviously started from as a social network, whereas Totiao is not a social network. There's some very big differences there. But we can actually say that the, the success of TikTok really is based upon the success of Totiao. Uh, if you don't understand Totiao, you won't understand why ByteDance is the company behind TikTok. The two are, it's a sequence of events that led directly to the advantage in the recommendation engine technology, which led to them making the breakthrough in the original version of Douyin, the original version of TikTok, which is Douyin. Yeah, everything's linked together. Understanding Totiao is critical to understanding TikTok. And so it's really what they did there were they were the first Chinese company to really place bets, big bets around going all in on uh, recommendation technology and recommendation engines and leveraging machine learning uh, and deep learning into building best in class technology around this. Uh, and that they did, you know, that was a big bet in 2012, 2013. Today, I think every mobile app leverages, you know, every large social uh, social network, social media app does this. It was really a, a big thing that not, not other people were aware of this in China, but no one really made the effort to go all in and, and really do it. Because back then, nobody really knew how to build a recommendation in, engine in China. The team had to learn themselves. Zhang Yimin actually had to you know, hunt down materials online and teach himself this technology in order to build the recommendation engine. So he really got involved hands-on. And back then, it was very uncertain that this would be the right direction. Today, it seems obvious. But building that advantage, building the best recommendation engine technology in China, in leveraging the user profile graph into surfacing personalized content, uh, was the advantage that they carried over into to Douyin. And then that, that leads into the next part of the story, where we come into like Musical.ly and Vine and all of the short video apps that came before TikTok in the West. But of course, none of them did anything as, as successful as TikTok. And so the, the recommendation was kind of the key there to sort of differentiate the experience. That's right. I'm glad that you mentioned Douyin and the, on the Musical.ly as well, because I think one can think of the success of TikTok in, in three stages. So we have Douyin in China, and then there was the acquisition of Musical.ly, and then uh, it expanded globally uh, across the decade from 2010 to 2020. So let's start with Douyin first. How did the app really cross the chasm to drive users? So for Douyin, uh, the, which is the original version of 
of TikTok. So the breakthrough happened in late 2017. I think it's no exaggeration to say that sort of Q4 of 2017 was the sort of pivotal time for ByteDance. The company completely changed itself based on what happened in, in those 90 days. Douyin, rather, going into this period was doing well. It had positioned itself as an app for trendy young urban users. Uh, you know, they were um, had all the hip hop community. I don't know if you remember in China back then, hip hop was huge, right? We had the, it still is. <laughs> well, it was that was the breakthrough, right? That was the breakthrough right. time before there was a clampdown and and it was really kind of fresh and new and suddenly hip hop culture became this new big thing. Douyin rather really you know jumped on that bandwagon and position themselves as part of that trend very successfully. So they had trendy kids using it and people in their early 20s were also on board. And there was a lot of rappers and artists and, and big name uh, celebrities, people like Chris Wu were endorsing it, etc. But it wasn't a mainstream app. And I, back then it was really something that, you know, some people described it as, <laughs> they, they ran some cinema adverts uh, in China at the time and people were saying, you know, this app is too cool for me. I can't use it. This is not... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's not for me. This is for like the kids. Uh, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm not cool enough for this. And that's really how it was positioned back in the early days. But it, it wasn't a mainstream app at all. It had success within a certain demographic. But to be honest, the, the numbers on it weren't amazing. It, it was most people back then believed that Huashan, the version of uh, of Kuaishou that, that um, ByteDance had released would be much more successful because that was following an already well-established model in the China market. Kuaishou at the time was the leading the short video market in China. So it was still playing second fiddle to Huashan. Over the October National Day holidays uh, was when it changed. And, and that was because they hooked up the Zhu Jia, who's one of their top engineers, led his team to sort of revamp the back end and really leverage what they had to work for the sort of musically experience because it was a back then, uh, quite clearly, just a clone of Musical.ly still. The user experience of Musical.ly, which is, you know, full screen vertical video with a swipe up motion to get to the, the, the next piece of content with music driven content discovery. So quite different from Total, right? You need to adapt the system quite heavily in order to make it work for this new user experience. But they, they did that. And, and once, you know, Joe and Jar's team actually made that work a lot better, uh, they saw just the Every single statistic around the app exploded from you know, retention rates uh, to you know, user numbers. Over that month, I think user numbers doubled. It just it kept going from there from like 7 million daily active users through to 14, through to 30. Uh, and then by Spring Festival 2018, it just completely broke out. And that was around the time that we had things sort of like, uh, I don't even remember, there's the karma, karma's a bitch meme that was huge and that, that broke out. It, there was a song called the Silly Silly Song, which everyone was oh, doing yeah. the Silly Silly Dance. If you remember that, yeah, right. that's the one. Yeah, yeah. So every, everyone in China knows this, right? Like the silly, these, these just went viral everywhere. But uh, Karma's a Bitch was interesting because it actually went outside China. You know, those compilations went everywhere uh, on global media. I was watching those compilations on YouTube, I must admit. They were very addictive. And I think each of them had like millions upon millions of, uh, of views. It was, it was uh, viral, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that was the really breakout period, those few months. Before that, the image around... ByteDance, you know, before that, ByteDance wasn't known as ByteDance. It was known as Totiao. Everyone just called it Totiao, right? Even the employees called it Totiao. 
Uh, only to, only in the last uh, sort of 18 months have people really got used to calling it ByteDance again. They were known as the, the Toteal company and Toteal was mostly used by the, mo the users for that app were mostly uh, countryside rural users, people using cheap or uh, mid-range uh, Android devices. And it had a quite bad reputation actually for serving users clickbait content and sort of trashy um, you know, memes and things like that. And uh, it wasn't a cool company, to be honest, right? It wasn't something that people would say, oh, you know, I work for Toteal. Oh, that's cool. You know, <laughs> they weren't perceived as, you know, perhaps um, for their advances in machine learning and were around recommendation. I think a lot of, you know, people respected that. In terms of their user base, it wasn't a very, you know, it wasn't perceived as a, a sort of very trendy company. That completely changed within this, you know, with, with Douyin and then, now with TikTok, it's just, uh, it's almost unimaginable. The old company and where it is today, it's just completely reinvented itself. That's right. This is a question that you said that your your book um, is set out to answer, like why not Tencent, right? And and we we know that Tencent did try to challenge Douyin on the home ground as well with Weishu. So so what did they get wrong and, and how why did they fail? Why not Tencent, you know? That's a question we, we definitely tried to answer. Why not Tencent? Yeah, you can't blame Tencent too much, to be honest. They got caught unaware, but I think everybody in the China market got caught unaware. That's what I find so fascinating about this is that nobody really predicted that Douyin would be so successful. Um, even ByteDance employees, nobody thought it was very special you know, up until late 2017. You know, the, the reasons for that, are, are, we, we go to quite deeply in the book, but Tencent basically entered the market for short video very early. And as soon as Vine became popular, they had their own version of Vine out in the China market a few months later called Weisha. And that was much, much earlier than, than anything that ByteDance did. So they entered the market early and with, with a clone of Vine, and it, it, it didn't really work out. Um, it was too early, basically. And for similar reasons to why Vine didn't work out, you know, Weisha also kind of flopped. They backed Kuaisho just before Douyin sort of exploded. Tencent, you know, came in and, and backed Kuaisho, uh, which was a smart move at the time. That if I think before, you know, at the time, People would say this is a classic 10 cent move, uh, invest in a proxy company, take a percentage, you know, don't go into the market yourself. This is what they've done with Meituan. This is what they've done with JD. This is a smart move and a savvy investment. And so they were pretty probably feeling quite safe. I, to be honest, at the time, I, I don't think I would have criticized them for what they did. But this, this thing just came out of left field. I don't think anyone really understood how powerful this combination could be of a recommendation plus the Musical.ly experience. And so it's sort of like one of the conclusions we got from the book is sort of that the Musical.ly team was sitting on a gold mine and they sort of had 65% perhaps of all of the things that they needed in order to become the next Facebook. <laughs> but they, they, they just didn't have this this uh, technology aspect um, down at all. And uh, obviously nobody really understood that, you know, this would, could be so big. You know, today in China, we have 600 million daily active users for, uh, for Douyin. So we haven't found the ceiling on this either. The user, the, the behavior we see in terms of daily active users is still growing today in the China market. And obviously it's still growing uh, all over the world, except for the few markets where TikTok's banned now. But 
we, we still don't know how far this can go. This is really, uh, a, you know, gone far, far further than anyone imagined possible. Short video back in 2017 was seen as a an important market, but but not critical. No one thought it would be this uh, this engaging and uh, this powerful in terms of monetization as well. So are TikTok and Douyin the two cash cows of ByteDance now? How how does these app bring in revenue for the company? And you know what are some of the key business models for them? Yeah, so Douyin and uh, TikTok is starting to. All, all three of their products is, is advertisement. It's an advertisement business. And I think they've learned a lot from Facebook in how they operate that advertisement business. It's very similar to Facebook. With, with advertisement, it's all about the uh, optimizing time spent in the app, right? The, the more time people spend using your products, the more adverts you can show, the more money you can make. Of course, there's many other ways that they make money. And actually, they've been quite innovative in sort of thinking up ways to convert attention into ad dot into dollars, not just ad dollars. You know, today in Douyin, there's a lot of there's exactly there's a lot of e-commerce that goes on, whether that's live stream e-commerce or short video e-commerce. You can pay. There's a thing called a Do Plus where users can actually pay the platform directly to just get exposure for their videos. That's a sort of a monetization we don't see too much outside China. You can pay for verification. They have a KOL platform where you know, they extract value from the KOL community that are working together with brands, which is something that Weibo has been doing beforehand. They've got all these different ways that they actually monetize the, the behavior on the platform. But to be fair, like the, the, the lion's share of it is advertisement. And those advertisements, are the, 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 the most successful format is the sort of standard in-feed video ad where you insert an advert between two normal videos and the advert is a full screen advert that auto plays with sound and looks just like a normal video. And so that's actually why it's so successful because advertisers have worked out that if you if you do an advert on Douyin or TikTok and you make it look like a normal TikTok video, then users actually think it's a normal TikTok <laughs> video. They will watch it, right? And they will watch it. Whereas most users on other platforms will just automatically skip past adverts, right? You see an advert, you just skip. On stories, for example, you know, on Instagram, you know, then advert comes up, you just start tapping straight away to get past it. Most people don't want to see adverts. Whereas on, on Douyin, uh, the notification for the advert is tiny. It's in the bottom and you can hardly, and it's next to another block of text. So if your advert's done in a sort of user-generated content fashion, it's very easy to trick the user into thinking it's not an advert, at least for the first few seconds. Uh, and that can be enough to sort of get them hooked on your story. So um, it's actually very similar to TV advertisement when you think about it. That's how TV ads, are, you know, Douyin adverts and TV ads. There's a lot of similarities to be to be drawn there, a lot of parallels. I've personally used the uh, Chinese version, so Douyin the most, and I've taken a look at the U.S. version of TikTok as well. But I'm curious, does the book also look at um, how the app is localized or globalized uh, in the different countries to ensure a, a better user experience? Yeah, sure. We we talk about the early days of TikTok and how it localized its operations for various Asian markets. Because before they merged with Musical.ly, TikTok and Musical.ly were actually competitors. That's a very instructive example of the difference between the two platforms and, and the strengths of TikTok. 
And uh, when you look at what they did early on with localizing for uh, the Asian markets, because up until 2018, it was really just the user base for TikTok was almost exclusively in Asia. The markets they attacked first were places like uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Japan, South Korea. And markets like Japan, Japan is, we talk about Japan in, in, in the book a bit. There's a short section on Japan because Japan is a very, very interesting case study. The Japanese market is extremely hostile for Chinese internet products. It's the toughest nut to crack. If you can crack Japan, there's sort of a perception that you know, you can crack anywhere. They did it. They actually got some success early on in Japan, which was quite uh, early on a very, very strong indicator that this product could go global very well because Japan actually has some interesting cultural phenomenon around how they use social media and how, how people interact online. Twitter is actually the biggest social media network in Japan still today. And people, when they use Twitter in Japan, they don't like to show their face on their profiles. And a lot of people like to set up multiple profiles with pseudonym names and keep their anonymity online. Is quite is actually a, a behavior that we see quite a lot of. People are a little bit afraid of, you know, when we think of early TikTok and musically, right? Back then, it's usually people dancing, lip syncing, making goofy comedy videos. You know, this is exactly the kind of content that Chinese, uh, that Japanese people are uh, traditionally meant to be you know, very bad at doing and sort of very afraid to do and embarrassed to create this kind of content. Before going into that market, you would think TikTok's probably going to do very badly. As it turned out, they found out ways to get around that. Even despite these local market cultural aspects should have been holding it back, it still did very, very well. And so that was the really the first market where TikTok had offices and staff on the ground. And so we talk about Japan a bit. And there is a lot of localization that they do for each market. In fact, even today, For You page is kind of localized for each regional market. And there's, there's, region, well, there's a sort of a region lock on TikTok. If, you, if you're using TikTok in Japan, for example, the For You page will be quite different than if you're using TikTok in Indonesia, for example. That's been an important aspect for actually uh, growing the platform is localizing the content and the, the recommendation is localized as well. That's loosening up over time. Uh, it used to be very, very regionalized where basically each country was like an island onto itself. And, and unless you used search, you actually couldn't get between, you couldn't find content you know, between countries. Now that's loosened up quite considerably. But in the early days, every country was like an island. That's my experience. It was very difficult for me to try to um, go on TikTok. I think I had to um, also remove uh, my SIM card while I was located in China. So VPN just simply would not work. And of course, there's pretty much no way for me to see content from anywhere else other than the US and uh, China now. And uh, that makes me really curious as to how you know the, the Japanese pages look like and how the Indonesian pages look like. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, well, what you're talking about there, Carol, is a little bit, little bit different because like Douyin and TikTok are, are sort of, Douyin is just for China and TikTok, you can't, you, you actually can't use TikTok in China, right? And you can't use Douyin, you're, you're, it's, you can actually, but it's very difficult to use Douyin outside China unless you have a Chinese SIM card. That's a very deliberate system. And it's actually got some parallels to WeChat, actually. Uh, you know, the WeChat system does work a little bit similar. That was a deliberate strategy. So, you know, Douyin and TikTok are completely separate, right, in terms of their content ecosystems. 
Whereas what I just described with each country being an island, they're all TikTok. They're just it's just the for you page is, is localized. So search, you can still find anything you want through search, but you wouldn't be able to find Chinese content on Douyin through TikTok on search. Gotcha. Okay, I understand now. And we know that there are, of course, really many different ways to look at TikTok. And um, this one interesting insight was from this article by Eugene Wei titled TikTok and the Sorting Hat. And the Sorting Hat referring to a Harry Potter uh, Sorting Hat. And uh, Eugene's insight is that TikTok does not need the social graph, but rather rely on the recommendation engine algorithm, which we talked um, quite a bit about, to push customized content for the user, which makes TikTok a more direct competitor to YouTube in the way that the content is presented and not in the sense of the length of the video, of course. What are your thoughts on how we should think of TikTok? Is it a um, just simply a mobile app, a social network, a video network? How, how should we really define it? Yeah, so TikTok themselves say openly, and they've been saying it for years, you know, we're not a social network. Uh, yeah, they, there's quotes for, they've been saying that for a long time. That's completely true. Uh, it's not a social network. I think the paradigm of comparing it to Facebook works in some in some ways. But you know, the, the paradigm of, of thinking of it as, as a, a new form of YouTube is in a much more useful way to think about it, I feel. In the book, we, we actually talk about YouTube in early on and use it as a case study to talk about recommendation because there's many really useful paradigms to think about this. So if you think back to YouTube in 2010, YouTube was actually pushing YouTube channels uh, quite heavily, which is based around the sort of concept that a YouTube channel would be something like a, a TV channel. That's exactly what they were trying to go for, is like replicating TV onto the internet. That YouTube channels is still with us today. It's still a way that people subscribe to content and find content. But actually what they found out from the advances that happened with Google around machine learning in 2000, uh, well, with Google Brain, obviously by by Andrew Ng and the and the Google X team, uh, so it, the Moonshot Lab that they had there, that was the really the big one. But even before that, with a system they had called Sybil in 2011, was that they made some really big breakthroughs with recommendation, and they found that the recommended videos on the right side of the screen, if you're using YouTube at, you know, on the desktop, were the best way to surface content to users. And it was far more effective than YouTube channels, which they didn't expect early on. They actually have been using recommendation as their primary way to match video content with users on YouTube for many, many years now. So I think it's been a bit overblown, actually, this sort of analysis that TikTok is a really unique around how they don't use a social network, because this is exactly what YouTube's been doing for many, many years. The correct parallel here is definitely YouTube to think about TikTok. Uh, and it's really a content platform. It's an entertainment platform. Also in the book, we mentioned something that you know, Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snapchat, talks about. He conceptualizes it as a pyramid of user behaviors where you have sort of communication at the bottom, which is Snapchat, which is about messaging friends. You could, in China, that would be something like WeChat for the messaging. And then on top of it, you've got the influencers, where it's more about sort of status. As you mentioned before, I think Eugene's written about that with status as a service, where influencer content, and this would be sort of Instagram content, basically. And then on top of that, you have pure entertainment, where the content actually takes a lot of time to produce, typically, and is just there to entertain you. And that would be YouTube or TikTok. So actually, Snapchat doesn't compete directly with TikTok. 
in, in his mind. He actually sees them as a friend, not as a foe. Maybe it's the enemy of that enemy is my friend, right? So like uh, they're compete, they're taking away time mostly from Facebook. So he sees that TikTok is a friend of, of Snapchat's. On a sort of high level, I think he's actually correct here that what TikTok does and what Snapchat does are so different. They don't really compete with each other. Even though the user bases are both very young. And so a lot of people think they do compete. But the purpose of TikTok is to entertain essentially. I know that 2020 has, of course, been a really tough year for all of us, but also especially for TikTok, right? There was, you know, the ban in India and then this just everything happening in the US, right? They initially hired Kevin Mayer, the former head of Disney Plus, to be the CEO of TikTok. And then, then Donald Trump threatened to ban the app. And there were talks about a forced sale. I know that your book doesn't specifically address the what's happening in the news, but what are some of your thoughts on this? Where do you think this is headed? especially given that the U.S. presidential election is just around the corner as well. I'm no political analyst. It seems pretty clear that, you know, Trump is using this, uh, you know, to uh, for political gains. I think this topic around the sort of political issues with TikTok has just been, there's so many people talking about it and it's been dissected to death. I'm actually really bored of it, of talking about it. I think there's so much being written about it and we don't know really what's happening. It's essentially a political issue. And uh, it's one of legislation and legal issues as well, right? So as someone who I'm, I'm coming at this from a very different direction where, you know, I want to sort of understand why is TikTok even in a position where it is today, where it's been so successful that it's got itself into a position where it's considered a threat. I think that's the key question to understand here. And a lot of people feel they understand it from using the app of why it's so addictive and why it's so popular. Uh, but we really sort of break it down, uh, I think, in a sort of more... A deeper way here of, of, of why that is. How it's so addictive is uh, what led to its popularity, but do you think it's it will also lead to its own demise because a lot of people, after having uh, feeling like they wasted so much time, right, they want to, you know, delete the app, get off of it because they can't control how much time they spend on the app. And uh, I myself actually left, you know, logging on to Douyin because I felt like it was a huge time waster. Do you think this could be one of the um, challenges that uh, uh, TikTok and Douyin? is going to face in the future. It's a good problem to have, right? (laughs) People are using your app so much that they feel they have to delete it because they feel they can't control themselves. As far as problems go, that's a pretty good problem to have if you're an advertising business anyway. But yeah, you're right. I did that myself at one stage also. So I have the same experience. And I think both of our experiences are not unique here. One of the things that is notable about ByteDance, I think they're quite aware that content-based applications such as Douyin or TikTok have a lower stickiness, I guess you could say, where with a social network such as WeChat, for example, which a messaging platform is even stronger, you can't delete that app very easily. You have to keep coming back because the value it's providing you is one of communication, which is a much stronger fundamental human need than entertainment. Having said that, entertainment is actually a pretty strong need for humans, but communication is really essential. You know, there's been talk in China a lot about how people want to delete WeChat, but they can't, right? So that's a sort of classic example of of how this thing works. But for a company like ByteDance, they just know that entertainment apps, they tend to rise and fall over time. You know, we've seen this with Facebook, it would be another really good example, the actual Facebook app, the blue app. It's really become a platform that many people don't want to go on now. They use it at a certain time, but now they feel they wouldn't use it. 
Instagram's popular today, but in five years' time, it might not be. We look back at MySpace, Friendster, and social networks like that beforehand, and it's quite clear that people can leave these places and move on. Although YouTube has actually stayed pretty strong over many, many years. It's very possible that people might one day get sick of TikTok might be on call and people want to leave it. And so the company actually has a sort of systems in place in order to consistently reinvent itself, I guess you could say, whereby they look to take what apps are trending and, and the sort of new innovations in the market, clone them quickly, iterate quickly, and build up new apps and test things out in order to try and build new, new content platforms consistently. You know, one of the in really interesting things about TikTok and Douyin, which a lot of people haven't commented on, I find it fascinating, is actually there's no founder of TikTok. There's no founder of Douyin. These apps didn't arise from the vision of an individual. You know, when you think about WeChat, Alan Jung's clearly the founder. When you think about Instagram, you know, there's a founder there. There's a founder of WhatsApp. All of the big names around the world uh, that we can think of, YouTube, Facebook, obviously, the biggest platform, consumer platforms, they all have founders. They have a founding story, and it's clearly a one or two individuals driving them. Whereas Douyin was born out of a, a, a systematic process within the company of experimentation. There is no founder. What they were doing at the time was just trying to clone what they felt were the best apps out in the market and seeing which one worked. Had Douyin failed early on? It was failing at one point, actually, early on. It didn't. It had a long cold start period. Had that continued, it would have just been shut down and they would have you know, experimented with other apps. You know, This actually is pretty positive for ByteDance as a company that they're able to do something like that. It does, you know, as an investor in the company, you might feel this is actually great, that they sort of made a sort of process around this in that they're able to systematically test new ideas without the sort of need to acquire other companies or get, you know, bring on board founder or have visionary founders like Alan Jung within their company in order to, to have breakout hit products. And I think that really ties to the title of your book, right? Attention Factory. It's this action of continuously, you know, churning out using um, already tried and tested method or system, which is very interesting. And I think that's something that, for example, Facebook has been trying to do maybe less successfully because they haven't really had many successes born internally. Now that I think all of us are ready to really finish with 2020 and, you know, get on with 2021. So what do you think are some of the key challenges for ByteDance in the coming year? So the key challenges for ByteDance, well, obviously the political risks are the key challenge. Like I say, it's a bit out of the scope of my knowledge to actually comment intelligently upon what's really going to happen there. We'll have to see. But I think Overall, you know, we can still be quite positive about this company, regardless of what happens in, in America. If they're able to stay in America, that's great. Obviously, that's a very lucrative market and that will be fantastic news. If they're not, they're still able to you know, do a lot in the Chinese market now and in many, many other global markets around the world. TikTok won't be banned everywhere. It's fair to say that a lot of places around the world, ByteDance will still be able to grow their user base through TikTok. So what we can expect from a company like this, a Chinese company, they will look to take the beachhead they have with TikTok now all around the world 
and use that to grow out and provide a whole myriad of internet services. So TikTok, as we looked at earlier, is a, you know an advertisement business. The advertisements work quite well. What we don't really see too much with Silicon Valley companies is that sort of willingness to use their own advertising inventory to promote their own products. We, we see it a bit, but Chinese companies tend to be much more aggressive about this. ByteDance will use TikTok in order to promote their other services. Things like LARP, but also their gaming titles when as and when they get that running properly or you know or a myriad of internet services that they'll start to offer all around the world is what we can eventually expect now that would take a few years to play out i mean that's not going to happen tomorrow in china that system's already very well established if you're using douyin you're going to be continually shown adverts for other ByteDance applications and products. You know, when I use it, I get adverts for children's educational apps that are operated by ByteDance, for example, because I have a daughter who's five years old now. So they're constantly trying to get me to use those apps. Education is a big area for ByteDance, for sure. Gaming is going to be a very big one eventually, I feel, because gaming is quite a lucrative area. And the logic behind why ByteDance can do well in gaming is actually the same logic of why Tencent can do well in gaming. When you really break down the unfair advantage that Tencent holds in gaming, it's one of uh, user acquisition, low-cost user acquisition. And so Tencent uh, has enjoyed that benefit for uh, since the early days of QQ, really, for a long time now, since they IPO'd back 2004, I think it was. It became obvious when they copied the models over from South Korea around virtual gifting and, and gaming that they could leverage the advantage they had in, in social networks and messages over into gaming. Douyin is very different from WeChat, but you know it fulfills a similar role of basically traffic is king. And when you have the traffic, you can divert that over into other applications. And so we're starting to see that with casual gaming first. I think ByteDance has already been quite successful in casual gaming, but they're more ambitious than that. You know, they've opened up big offices in Shenzhen next to Tencent and they're hiring a lot of gaming people and they want to move into gaming properly. Fortunately for Tencent, they've locked down the value chain in gaming quite well. They've invested in pretty much every gaming studio they can that's any good. They've got the live streaming down. They've got all the many of big the big IPs down and they all across the value chain. They've embedded themselves quite well over the years. So it is a tough uphill battle for Douyin and ByteDance, for sure. But I think at some point we're going to see a breakthrough hit because the gaming industry tends to be very volatile. That's one of the characteristics of it is that it's very unpredictable and hits tend to come out of nowhere. Before, if you're a gaming company in South Korea or if you're a gaming company in Europe and you've got a massive global hit on your hands which come out of, out of left field, you know, Tencent used to be the obvious partner there. If you want to move into China, you partner with Tencent. You might choose NetEase, but you're very likely to choose Tencent. They're, they're the obvious ones to choose, and they will offer a big benefit. Now you've got ByteDance in the mix, and I get the feeling they're going to snipe a, a title eventually and then use that as a showcase title in order to prove what they can do in the market with driving downloads and usage. I predict that will happen in the next few, uh, you know, year or two. That sounds very interesting, and I really look forward to, to that happening, you know, them shaking up the industry a little bit. Now, this is an interesting question for you. I know you've just, you know, finished writing this book and it just published, but do you think you'd ever want to write a sequel, for example, a couple years down the road about ByteDance again? Or do you think you want to maybe write about another Chinese company, one that may not even exist right now? Yeah, we've actually got 
behind the scenes have had several ideas for books and things that we've been putting together over the years. And to, to be honest, I, I only want to release something if I think it's really good and worthy of people's time. It's actually quite easy to write a book if you just want to write a book. But to write something that I think is meaningful, maybe I'm too much of a perfectionist, I don't know. But like I feel I only want to put something out book-wise if it's meaningful and uh, holds a value in the market. So uh, I believe this title does do that. And I, I believe eventually I, I can also do something around Tencent also, which is actually a much more difficult company to do this kind of book about because they're older. And particularly, uh, you know, I would want to do something around WeChat, but Alan Jung is such a, a secretive character, a real mystery, even within China, that it's very difficult to get the real behind the scenes reality of what happened. It's certainly in the early days. Um, so that would be my dream is to really write something very meaningful around that. You know, there's so many Chinese internet companies that uh, have not had their stories told yet. You know, uh, TikTok and, and, and ByteDance are certainly getting the most attention today. I don't believe it will be the only breakout hit from China. Given that the, the market is so different, it's so alien, really, when you're talking about China for most people, they don't use these apps. They don't behaviors and the names and the people behind them. It's all it's also different from what we're used to outside China with the big Silicon Valley companies that you have to do so much explaining and backstory and really build up fuller picture to really get a deeper analysis, which is why I think a book is a good format to do that. Unless you're doing a long essay, it's very difficult to really get a, a sort of deeper understanding to the reader of what really is important here. So we'll have to see how it goes. I mean, the book reception so far has been pretty good. So hope, fortunately, if it, that would be encouraging to do something else again in the future. I do also would um, love to read your book on Tencent and WeChat. I have faith in you that I think if there was a you know, a book in English that is worth everyone's time to read and that is on WeChat on Tencent, I think you'd be the perfect person to to author th such a book because of the um, number of years that you put in just covering their story, you know. And I think um, from this interview, I hope all of our listeners would be rushing to get a copy without even having, you know, gotten here uh, to this part of our, our interview already. So um, thank you for, you know, coming on and sharing your thoughts with us on on both TikTok, Douyin, and then also on the company for introducing us more to your book. And now before we close this interview, and just two last questions. First of all, do you have any recommendations that uh, have recently inspired you that you want to share with our listeners? And also, where can our audience find you and your new book, Attention Factory, if they want to? Yeah, sure. Well, you can. the, the book is uh, on Amazon right now. We'll get distribution for China shortly, but uh, at the moment, as of today, uh, you can get it on Kindle and you can get uh, paperback, paperback as well through Amazon Print On Demand. If you want to find me online, Twitter, LinkedIn are good platforms where I post content regularly. Yeah, I think those are the best places to find me. You can email me directly. Uh, we'll leave that in the show notes if you want, if you want to reach out. Yeah, I think that's about it. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's always great to have you on Analyze Asia. Wish you all the best with your new book. And of course, we look forward to having you on again next time. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Carol. Pleasure as always.